1: Hello history friends, you're about to listen to the 80th episode of the Versailles Anniversary project, and I'm very happy that you are. Thanks very much for joining me for all of these episodes. If this is your first time listening, you're going to have pretty much no idea what's going on, but if you've been following us since the very beginning, I just wanted to say thanks so much for making this project possible. The reason why I'm able to spend so much time on projects like these is because this podcast is my job. If you weren't aware, I basically make my income from this podcast. And the best way to support this income is by going over to Patreon and pledging some money every month and getting some pretty sweet stuff in return. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails is where you should go if you want to get an hour of extra content every month and so much more goodies. At the moment, while we are in the twilight era of the Versailles anniversary project, we're also winding down our Suez Crisis Examination too. But after that, from September, we're going to be looking at something very exciting indeed. Poland is not yet lost. It's something that I'm really looking forward to covering, a project which has really never before been done and something which, for many people, is very mysterious to them. The idea that Poland could even have been a major power is seriously hard to imagine, but it's also hard to imagine how it went from being a pretty powerful state in the year 1700 and 95 years later, essentially disappeared from the map of Europe. The story of how that happened is a really fascinating one and I cannot wait to bring it to you. So if you would like to be there and ready when it lands, make sure to go and visit our Patreon page and see if that story is worth $5 a month to you. Maybe instead of buying that overpriced Starbucks coffee or that sandwich you didn't even really like, you'll go and support this podcast instead. Or maybe you'll do both, just because you're feeling like living on the wild side a little bit. Speaking of living on the wild side, well, it's not really living on the wild side, but it's about as close as we're going to get today. It's time to delve into the latest episode of Versailles. You're listening to the Versi Anniversary Project, episode 80. Today is the 23rd of June 2019, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. It seems strangely poetic that the crisis which began with an ultimatum five years before should end with an ultimatum five years later. On the 23rd of July 1914, we may recall, it was Austria-Hungary who delivered their ultimatum to Serbia. Following its expiration and some typically Habsburg dilly-dallying, war was declared then on the 28th of July. We began our July Crisis Anniversary project on the 28th of June 2014, and it is one of those strange coincidences which seem to be so tied to this era, that the whole wretched period of failed diplomacy, millions of deaths and the dislocation of civilization can be fit within a mostly neat five-year period, the 28th of June 1914 to the 28th of June 1919. In a few days, it'll be five years since I first began my examination of this incredible era, but still, after five years, I'm learning so many new things. Front and centre today is the fact that the Peace Conference, for all intents and purposes, ended on the evening of the 23rd of June, rather than the 28th of June. Once it was made known that the Germans would sign at that time, a weight was lifted from the Allied shoulders. The peace treaty, which they had spent the last several months creating and then defending, would be made official after all, in spite of some Allied reservations and numerous German protests. The period between that confirmation and the 28th of June, when the Germans actually signed, was thus a time of waiting on the Allied side, but within Paris, It was also a time of celebration, as we'll see in the next episode. As I said though, today our examination focuses on that day of days, Monday the 23rd of June 1919, which was the culmination of everything that the Big Three had worked towards over the previous months. Their patience, it was said, had run out, and the deadline was non-negotiable, expiring at 7pm that evening. Failure to comply would land the Germans in a resumed war, they stood no chance of winning, but to some Germans acceptance was worse than this doom. A standoff ensued, one which is often forgotten in the grand scheme of the Versailles story, but which we're going to delve into today, so let's get into it now. The troubled troop of German statesmen gathered together for a meeting at 8am on Monday the 23rd of June. It was far earlier than most would normally have met, and they'd only dispersed a few hours before, but it reflected the gravity of the situation. Assembled were the cabinet ministers, sourced from the centrist, Catholic and social democratic parties of the country, and having formed a government only the day before. By now it was known to Chancellor Gustav Bauer, President Ebert and Foreign Minister Hermann Müller that the Allies would not countenance the removal of those points of honour, which placed the blame and burden of reparations at Germany's feet. Germany's statesmen had fewer than 12 hours to reach a solution or the deadline would expire and war would be resumed by default. A suggestion was made to make another appeal to the Allies for an extension. This would at least take the pressure off. The worst the Allies could say was no, so it was worth a try. This message read as follows. The Minister for Foreign Affairs instructs me to beg the Allied and Associated Governments to prolong for 48 hours the time limit for answering Your Excellency's note communicated yesterday evening. It was only on Saturday after great difficulties... That a new cabinet was formed which unlike its predecessor could come to an agreement to declare its willingness to sign the treaty as regards nearly all its provisions the national assembly has expressed its confidence in this cabinet by a large majority of votes the answer only arrived here just before midnight as the direct wire from versailles to weimar was out of order the government must come into contact anew with the national assembly in order to take the grievous decision which is still required of it in such a manner as it can only be taken in accordance with democratic principles and with the internal situation in Germany? The message was sent with blistering speed, and the urgency of the moment was reflected in the fact that, a few hundred miles away, the Allies were also meeting at the unusually early time of 9am for their first meeting on this eventful day. It had become habit to meet at 11am in days gone by, so the earlier start time was as clear an indication as any that the situation had changed. Unfortunately for the Germans, it was only now that the full extent of the events of Scapa Flow were being weighed up, and the weighing process was finding Germany to be firmly in the wrong. Predictably enough, any possible sense of sympathy that the Allies would have had for giving Germany another extension as requested in that above note would have evaporated. The more that the Allies considered Scapa Flow. Lloyd George tackled the issue first, predictably enough, saying that... After carefully considering the matter, I feel that the sinking of the German ships in the Orkneys weighed principally against granting the German request for an extension of an armistice for 48 hours. There was no doubt that the sinking of these ships was a breach of faith If bridges were blown up and loss of life caused and military occupations hampered by these or similar measures, the public would say that this was the reason for which time had been granted. Consequently, I am inclined to reply with a refusal, mentioning the sinking of the German ships. Wilson added his two cents to the question as well, confirming that if he had been assured that he was dealing with honourable men, or even with ordinary men, then he would be willing to give not 48, but just 24 hours. However, he shared Mr Lloyd George's suspicions to the full and said he did not trust the Germans. Wilson also queried whether the telephone line was down between Paris and Weimar. Would it be possible, in other words, to make any last-minute calls between the Council of Four and the German government? Clemenceau confirmed that it would be possible, and that they could obtain immediate communications by telephone if it was believed necessary. So far as he was concerned... He was also in favour of refusing the German request. Some disagreement over how to proceed followed. The Japanese minister was actually in favour of a delay, since as he put it, The principal object was to get the Germans to sign, and to demand a signature by tonight would make fulfilling this term difficult. In addition, Wilson said he believed that there was no need to mention that the reason for the refusal to extend the deadline was because of the Scapa Flow incident, because, the president claimed, The case for the bad faith of the Germans was so overwhelming that there was no necessity to cite specific instances. It was a fact, however, that the German government had been formed to sign the treaty. Lloyd George agreed, and he added that he had already consulted the British military authorities, who had no doubt at all that it would be a grave mistake to give any extension of time. The Prime Minister then recalled what had been stated at the Conference of Generals on the previous Friday, in other words, the 20th of June, that the Allied soldiers had already been sleeping in the Allied air for five nights and were exposed to considerable hardships. Interestingly, Lloyd George did urge the importance of politeness in the reply to the Germans. Lloyd George pointed out that history was apt to judge these matters by the actual terms of the letter, and Lloyd George even recalled, how Bismarck's communications had been scrutinised from this point of view. Thus, in spite of the evident anger which was felt towards the Germans for Scapa Flow, and despite the fact that, according to the minutes at least, Scapa Flow served as the major incentive for refusing an extension, the actual Allied reply was both reserved and bland, which has only served to confuse historians since as to the actual impact which Scapa Flow had. As far as Wilson was concerned, the behaviour of the Germans spoke for itself, so there was no need to explicitly reference this bad behaviour. So it was that the Allied response to the desperate German request read, The Allied and Associated Governments beg to acknowledge the receipt of your communications of June 23rd. After full consideration of your request, they regret that it is not possible to extend the time already granted to Your Excellency to make known your decision relative to the signature of the treaty without any reservation. The main subject for discussion at the next meeting of the Council of Four at 11am was still Scapa Flow, and admirals were brought in to provide a full account of the event for the benefit of the Big Three. It was here that the responsibility of the Rear Admiral, Ruder, who was never mentioned by name in the minutes, was established. The official explanation of the Weimar government, that Ruder had acted on his own initiative, was absorbed, but not accepted as sufficient to absolve the Weimar government of its responsibility. According to the terms of the armistice, it was pointed out, the government was responsible for the actions of individuals under its jurisdiction. Reuter might have been personally responsible for what had occurred, but it would be from Weimar that the Allies would request concessions. This represented a strange halfway home between believing Reuter's explanation that he thought the armistice had expired and that war was about to resume, and blaming Weimar for what happened. The big three were surprisingly willing to accept Reuter's official explanation, a fact which was somewhat problematic when the British spent the next few months doing all in their power to wrest compensation from his government, holding he and his officers hostage in order to do so. The next meeting was just after noon and it took a time out from German issues, focusing on matters as wide as the status of Jews in Polish schools. What could be classified as a Jew? Was it a racial or religious question? and how to adjust the borders of Yugoslavia under the Austrian Peace Treaty. Remarkably, additional messages followed suit that day. The Austrian Treaty was considered of more importance than the pending decision of the German government, it seemed. Perhaps this stemmed from the reasonable fact that there was little the Big Three could do now other than wait for Germany's response. They had turned down the last-ditch effort of the Germans to extend the deadline, and the Germans knew what was at stake, so it remained for the Allies only to wait. Back in Weimar, of course, there was hardly time to breathe, let alone to consider matters other than the impending doom which the ticking clock seemed to threaten. The 23rd of June was a kaleidoscope of emotions for Germany's politicians. The first half of the day was occupied with anxious meetings, both between the party members and the cabinet itself. President Ebert attempted to intervene on several occasions, at one point beckoning the leaders of each party to meet with him. There was talk of forming yet another government, which would be willing to accept the terms unconditionally, but the different parties could not agree on the composition of this government. The centrists met with the National Democrats, the Social Democrats met with the Independent Socialists, and all the while the clock ticked towards the deadline. One compromise was suggested, in light of the fact that the Allies had refused the extension. It was noted by a centrist politician that the assent given by the government the previous day to accept the treaty in principle was adequate. There would be no need, in other words, to hold another contentious vote. Hugo Haas, the leader of the Independent Socialists, was asked for some kind of guarantee over how the people would react. So far as it is possible at all, Haas said, I give the guarantee for my own party, as well as for those farther to the left, that there will be no cause for uprisings if the treaty is accepted, but we cannot guarantee anything if it is not accepted. The more extreme leftist elements would hopefully be quiescent then, but what about the right-wing National Democratic Party? A pledge from their number not to use the vote for the treaty as a political weapon in future was welcomed since, as these more conservative Germans claimed, they had no doubt of their patriotism. Thus it seemed that both sides of Germany's political establishment would be willing to accept the unacceptable when faced with this severe challenge. So what of the army? Defence Minister Gustav Nosk, who we last heard from when he was putting down the Spartacist uprising back in January, obtained a guarantee from some leading generals that the officer corps would defend the fatherland in the event that it came under attack from fringe elements angry with the government for accepting the treaty. In such a way, the danger of a coup d'etat was apparently answered. With these bases covered, Chancellor Bauer and President Ebert moved to get the announcement of their acceptance communicated as quickly as possible to the allies time was of the essence it was essential to proceed as quickly as possible to the assembly the members of the constituent assembly were then told at 2:30 p.m. that the treaty would be accepted and the vote held the previous day would suffice as the country's political body assenting to that treaty there would be no need to hold a very sensitive vote which explicitly included the most unpopular articles of 227 to 231 Chancellor Bauer's presentation of the situation drew opposition and protests only from the German Nationalist Party, who demanded a vote by roll call. Bauer then made the very brave decision to ask the leaders of the German Nationalist Party whether they were willing to take the responsibility for delaying the vote three hours before the expiration of the Allied ultimatum. What followed was incredibly significant, as the majority of the Assembly indicated their assent to acceptance without reservations by rising from their seats Few could have argued that this 11th hour capitulation was forced through by a tiny, treacherous minority, or, as the Nazis would later claim, Bolsheviks, traitors and Jews. Instead, it was the overwhelming majority of Germans who acted, in the name of avoiding a resumption of war and a worsening of the suffering. Thus, the cabinet of the German Republic was empowered by the National Assembly to accept unconditionally, at 3.15pm, on the 23rd of June 1919, the Allied Treaty. Hundreds of miles away, back in President Wilson's Parisian house at the tail end of a 5pm meeting, this news of the German acceptance was received. Balfour was then in the middle of a speech advocating the prosecution of the German government for Scapa Flow. Yes, it took the Allies a long time to get over that event. And Balfour had begun by proclaiming that The Council desired to punish the culprits and squeeze the utmost out of Germany. It appeared that they were in a position to punish the culprits as to squeezing the Germans. And then mid-sentence, it was then that an Allied technician entered the room and presented the news to the assembled Allied leaders. The minutes note that Orders were given for the guns to be fired, and that No further discussion took place. But it is certainly easy to imagine the atmosphere of the meeting, even if this atmosphere wasn't stated. The Allies had spent the day spinning their wheels, investigating all manner of unrelated issues as they kept their eyes firmly focused on the clock. Here we find evidence that it wasn't until sometime after 5pm, most likely closer to 6pm, that the official word of the German capitulation was received by the Council of Four. As we will see though, other Allied officials such as Edward House were better placed than these men who were cooked up in an intensive meeting out of the range of the latest news. Consequently, these leading Allied figures were actually some of the last ones to know this good news. Even so, the Germans had left it very late indeed, but it had taken that long to absorb the bad news about Allied resilience, and then to wrest guarantees from all sides of the country that no penalties would be incurred by the government for signing, and that the patriotism and honour of these ministers would not subsequently be called into question. Tragically, of course, these commitments were not upheld and these officials soon became targets for the most extreme wings of German nationalists. Matthias Erzberger, Germany's Minister for Finance and a firm advocate for accepting the treaty from an early stage, will be gunned down by such extremists in 1921. An unfortunate victim of the Paris Peace Conference and Treaty of Versailles, but by no means the last victim. While the feat of gathering Germany's state apparatus around the unpopular decision to sign was impressive, The tone of the note which announced the decision was unmistakably forlorn and bitter. This note deserves repeating here, because it represents in many respects the end of the story, and the last German word on what had just taken place. It read... The government of the German Republic has seen with consternation from the last communication of the Allied and associated governments that the latter are resolved to wrest from Germany by sheer force, even the acceptance of these conditions of a peace, which, though devoid of material significance, pursue the object of taking away its honour from the German people. The honour of the German people will remain untouched by any act of violence. The German people, after the frightful sufferings of the last few years, lacks all means of defending its honour by external action, yielding to overwhelming force, but without, on that account, abandoning its view in regard to the unheard injustice of the conditions of peace. The government of the German Republic therefore declares that it is ready to accept and sign the conditions of peace imposed by the Allied and associated governments. In some way, Germany's eventual capitulation might have confirmed the idea to some Allied figures that Germany had been defiant and dishonest to the end. She had always intended a sign, and this note proved that she would never have risked war, and yet she had delayed and flummoxed Allied negotiators for as long as possible. Any critics of these German tactics, some of which were undoubtedly dishonest, should have asked themselves what they might have done in the same position. If the shoe had been on the other foot, for instance, would Clemenceau, Wilson or Lloyd George really have refrained from doing absolutely everything in their power to get a better deal if they'd been on the losing side? By this point, that question no longer truly mattered. What mattered and said was what happened next. The guns, as the minutes note, were fired. This would have signalled to Paris that the looming deadline had been met, and that there would be no war. The peace conference was over. The treaty would be signed. All the work had not been in vain. One figure who missed out on these celebrations was Harold Nicholson, who recorded the reason on the 21st of June. He had left Paris for Geneva to look for a house which would serve him during his time on the British delegation for the League of Nations. And he was far from the only one taking on this mission. Nicholson returned on Tuesday, the twenty fourth of June to note that I find the people are relieved at Weimar Assembly having authorized signature, but rather shamed at the sinking of the German fleet. Evidently, Nicholson could detect the residual regret which that incident had caused, even on such an auspicious occasion which saw the war come to an end effectively, notwithstanding his eventual gratitude for the incident having answered the difficult naval question for him. There is little doubt that Lloyd George and his peers felt the sting of the German sabotage very painfully indeed. It was far too spectacular and controversial an event not to stick in the minds of Allied statesmen, but it by no means overshadowed the significance of the German capitulation. House provided a long and detailed account of the day of Monday the 23rd of June, starting with a record of the moment when news of the critical German note was received. House wrote, This has been a red-letter day. The Germans have notified us that they will sign the treaty. I went to the Ministry of War to embrace Clemenceau and to be embraced in turn. When I congratulated him, he said that I was as much entitled to congratulations as he was and he blessed all American men, women and children and the house family individually, in and in general. The old man looked fatigued and he told me he was having great trouble not only with the chamber but also with his cabinet and that he intended to resign within the next six weeks. I urged him to do so. We discussed the signing of the treaty and whether it could be done before Friday. He thought not. I was rather insistent that it be hurried. The guns are being fired, rockets are going up and crowds are parading the streets. It would seem to be better to wait until the actual signature had taken place. The Germans are not unlikely to refuse at the last moment or to do something to delay the signing. House then went on to detail the events of Scapa Flow with the biting claim that Everyone is laughing at the British Admiralty following. Indeed, despite the fact that it had happened on Saturday the 21st of June, it wasn't until two days later that the Council of Four spent some time considering the event on Monday the 23rd. The appearance of this discussion at such a time when the deadline for peace or war was 7pm that day might seem odd, misplaced or generally outdated since events were moving so quickly at this stage, but it did at least give the Big Three an opportunity to focus on something other than the looming deadline. As House recorded, though, even with the five separate meetings of the Council of Four on this day 100 years ago, the American delegation still had the opportunity to meet several times during the day. On one occasion in the late afternoon, shortly after the news of Germany agreeing to sign was received, the five Americans on the delegation decided to speculate about the future of the world, specifically in regard to war. Their conclusions were interesting indeed. House wrote... Bliss and I suggested, as an argument in favour of the League of Nations, that war in future would become so atrocious that it might lead to the death of civilizations. We thought the ingenuity of man would be directed towards every form of destruction. The President took the contrary view. He believed this war had been so terrible, it would restrain such efforts in future wars. Bliss and I argued with him that if two nations went to war and the balance of the world remained neutral, this might be true, but if all the world became involved... There would be no bystanders to see fair play. Therefore, warfare would be unrestrained in every sense and would be terrible in its consequences. We could not get him to see it as we did. Lansing and White mildly agreed with Bliss and myself. The President has some peculiar quirks. This is one of them. The fact that he could not be persuaded to believe in heavy battleships and cruisers during war was another. He has not many quirks, but occasionally he astonishes one. House also noted how Wilson continued to complain about Vittorio Orlando's conduct during the peace conference now that he had had the time to reflect on the overall journey. House knew better than to disagree since Wilson was in a particularly agitated state by this point. In fact, House even went as far as pretending he was hearing the news for the first time when Wilson told him about Germany's willingness to sign, just in case the president took offence. As we noted, since Wilson and his counterparts were holed up in a private meeting while the news was being disseminated around Paris, it was only to be expected that he would not hear it before everyone else. Nevertheless, House was attuned enough to the President's sensitivities to discern that the situation recommended caution regardless. Wilson also refused to dine with President Poincaré of France, who Wilson had come to view as on Italy's side and against America. House would wear down Wilson eventually, and persuade him to dine with Poincaré one last time on Thursday the 26th of June, before leaving Paris. But House confined his private thoughts on Orlando to his diary. we spent a great deal of time, guys, far more time than I ever expected to, poring over the Italian difficulties and its other allied partners. But House provides us with a convenient final word on this issue, and on Orlando's character, when he wrote... I do not know what experiences the President had with Orlando when I was not present, but I do know that when the three of us were together and Orlando and I worked alone, I found him one of the most satisfactory of colleagues. He was always courteous, even under trying circumstances, and he was generous almost to a fault in yielding to the American view when his own country was not involved. And even in negotiations involving Italy, he endeavoured to be fair, and when, from our point of view, he was not, it was because of the pressure brought to bear upon him from Rome and from his Italian colleagues. I shall always remember him as an able, upright gentleman who strove to do his very best under very difficult circumstances. Unfortunately for Orlando, he was not present in this final push of the negotiations. He had quietly returned to Rome a few days before, leaving Sidney Sanino, his foreign minister, behind in Paris to carry the burden of Italian representation. Once he returned home, Orlando lost a vote of confidence, and he subsequently resigned as Premier on the 23rd of June. The same day all these vexatious deliberations over Germany were going down, in other words, Orlando was facing into the twilight of his political career. For a man in his 60s, it seemed likely that this was to be the end, but, in fact, Orlando would live on until 1952, dying at the ripe age of 92 at his home in Rome. By then, the man had lived through the most transformative and traumatic years of Italian history. Initially a supporter of Mussolini following his seizure of power in 1922, Orlando broke with him at just the right time to avoid being guilty by association, and he made a limited political comeback following the Second World War. Active in writing on law, which he had practised before entering politics, Orlando remained a curious relic of the old era. He was too experienced to ignore, but he was too tainted to wholly welcome back into government. He would remain critical of his Allied counterparts for the rest of his political career, and they would hold the same view of him. We have spent a lot of time with Orlando over the last few months, and while I would not consider him a proper, fully-fledged member of the Big Allied grouping, the Council of Four was formed as a unit of four for a reason. The Big Three made most of the decisions, but it is impossible to deny Italy's, or indeed Orlando's, influence on the Paris Peace Conference, for better or for worse, which was far at odds with what any Allied statesman had expected him to wield. The concessions which Wilson refused to make to Italy cost both Orlando and Wilson in his turn a considerable amount, particularly when the Japanese gained from the President's resultingly difficult position. By no means a saint, of course, Italy strikes me as one of the unexpected victims of the conference. She was not, in the grand scheme of things, asking for anything that the Big Three had not requested and received for their own sacrifices. The problem was that she was not strong or important or loud enough to get what she wanted. This was the key factor which separated Orlando from his peers, and while it was never explicitly said, it meant the difference for Italy between satisfaction or despair and, as it turned out, democracy or fascism. Democracy or fascism, indeed, were two stark choices for Germany as well. Her statesmen had done all they could to bring the impossible treaty over the line, and make the unacceptable event as bearable as possible. As it happened, though, signalling their willingness to sign was one thing. Finding someone in Germany to travel back into the lion's den and actually sign that paper in front of the world, thereby putting his name onto the most infamous treaty in Germany's history, was another task entirely. It was this mission, more than any other, that delayed the conclusion of the peace conference for another few days. By and large, though, this did not matter all that much to the big three. After so many months, so many anxious hours, and so many flaming meetings, the peace process was finally at an end. Now all that remained, it seemed, was to sign the Treaty of Versailles and leave this period of history in the rear view mirror. Unfortunately for them, for the Germans, and for us, it would not be so easy.